Grab your Bibles. We're going to jump right into it. Turn to John chapter 8. We're wrapping up uh, chapter 8. In fact, wrapping up our study in John for the rest of the year because the Reformation time is coming and then Thanksgiving is coming and then Advent, so we have much to do in the coming months, but we're going to finish here at the end of John 8 this morning. After several months of studies, I think I figured out we've been in 10 sermons just on this one remarkable scene of Jesus in the temple courts speaking to this crowd of Jews after the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, The great Scottish theologian William Barclay once described this section of Scripture in this way. He said, It's a chapter which passes from lightning flash to lightning flash of astonishment. And if you've been through the series with us, you probably saw that. The word picture that's drawn there is really, really cool. Because I know, look, we live in Southern California, so we don't get a lot of lightning storms, right? But when we get one of those freak uh, uh, electrical storms, it is a wonder to behold. And you know this if you've been through a lightning storm. What happens as the storm gets closer to your position, to where you are? The lightning gets brighter and the rolls of the thunder get louder, right? And that's what Dr. Barkley is talking about. Throughout this scene that started in the middle of chapter 7, goes all the way through chapter 8. Throughout this scene, Jesus has been making one astounding claim after another about who he is. And each claim has made everything more intense, like the lightning and the thunder getting louder and getting brighter. Each one has, has caused this sort of growing intensity among the crowd. And so the crowd is now put into a position. Either I grasp the truth about him, what he's claiming to be, and I fall on my knees and I worship him, or I do the opposite. I bend down and I pick up a rock with the intent of stoning him to death. That is the the decision that has to be made in this particular moment. We've been saying this throughout this series. There is no middle ground between those two things, right? He's either the son of God or he's a blasphemer of the highest order. So don't play the fool and try to claim he's something in between, which is what so many people try to do today. He hasn't given us that choice. C.S. Lewis said that very famously. Jesus hasn't given us the choice to say there's a middle ground there. Is he the son of God or is he a blasphemer? Now listen to, before we get to today's passage, listen to the list of things that Jesus has declared up to this point. Listen to this. And consider the sheer audacity of some of the things he has said to this, to this crowd. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I have come down from heaven, imagine. I have authority to forgive sins. I will give you living water springing up to eternal life. Get up, take your pallet, and walk. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son gives life to whomever he wishes. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has passed out of death and into life. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins." 
You do not know God. Your father is the devil. If anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. Those are some wild claims, are they not? Again, put yourselves in the sandals of a first century Jew hearing this rabbi from Nazareth say such things. How would you respond? Now this morning, we're going to add one more claim to that list as we look at verses 56 to 59. There's our verses for the morning. But let's back up to verse 48 so that we're reading in context. But we're going to focus on those last four verses this morning. Beginning in verse 48, John chapter 8, it says, The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father who, Abraham who died. The prophets died too, died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? That's that great question, right? Who do you think you are? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, or it means nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. And you've not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Yeah. Whew. Now our verses for this morning. Here's, here's what Dr. Barkley says about this section. He says, he says, all the previous lightning flashes pale in significance before the blaze of this passage. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So verse 58 is the lightning flash that is the greatest of all that we've seen thus far. Before Abraham was born, I am. This is Jesus throwing down the gauntlet right there in the temple courts. Far from trying to pacify this crowd, to try to win them over in some way, or to give them something simple and easy to chew on, he makes this shocking claim about his relationship, get this now, both with Abraham and with time itself. Think about that. Again, it's a statement intentionally designed to divide the crowd between those who are led by the Spirit and therefore will grasp what he's saying or those whose father is the devil, and therefore they will not be able to accept this truth about him. And it's that second group who will not only not believe, but will actually seek to stone him to death. So, question for us, which side of the crowd are you on this morning? There's no middle ground. You're either going to believe him or you're going to stone him. There's no middle ground. So as we finish this long section of John's gospel, this is a great time to examine your heart. What do you actually believe about God? What do you actually believe about Jesus in relation to the Father? A.W. Tozer has this great quote. I'll put it on the screen. He says this, What is God like? What kind of God is he? How may we expect him to act toward us? 
Such questions are not purely academic. They touch the far-in reaches of the human spirit, and their answers affect life and character and destiny. He goes on. To our questions, God has provided answers. Not all the answers, certainly, but enough to satisfy our intellects and to ravish our hearts. These answers he's provided in nature, in the scriptures, and in the person of his son. So there's a few things we should know about God. Let me me share a few things with you. First of all, we as human beings, we are the sum of our parts, aren't we? Mind, body, soul, whatever terms you want to use. But God is not the sum of his attributes. He's very different than us. In fact, the early church father, Athanasius, is famous for codifying a phrase which, if you think too long about it, it'll make your brain hurt. He said, God is made of nothing. He's made of none. He just is. He's not the sum of anything. God is made of none. Every attribute of God is true of all of God's being simultaneously. In other words, he's always entirely wise, always entirely loving, entirely just, entirely merciful, entirely faithful, and so forth. So forth. He's all of those things all the time simultaneously. It's, it's really beyond what we can even fathom in our little puny minds, right? And while man's character is inherently corrupt and subject to change, and while our physical bodies slowly weaken over time, God is different. He is utterly and perfectly holy. He is forever unchanging, and he neither improves nor weakens in any way. Now, there's some attributes about God that are what we call communicable to you and I as human beings, as, as, as creatures made in his image. There are things that are partially mirrored in us, things about God that are partially mirrored in us. For example, God is perfectly wise, and we who are made in his image can show a measure of wisdom in the way we live our lives, right? We sort of mirror in a very small way what God is. While he's absolutely just in all of his ways, we are capable of pursuing a measure of justice in the way that we live as human beings. And then there are, all, there are a whole list of things that are what we call incommunicable. There are things that are not transferable in any way from God to the creature. And we just encountered one of them here in John 8. God is eternal. God is eternal. We, of course, had no pre-existence, right? We come into an existence at a certain time. There was no Jeff No until June 21st, 1963. And then I came into existence. That's very different from God, right? The theological term that we use for that concept in Latin is asse, from self. God is from himself. He said to possess aseity, aseity. And in that aseity, we can speak of God of being two things, both imminent and transcendent. He is both near and far away. Meaning, he thoroughly permeates his creation. He is present everywhere, in time and space, but he's also above and outside of his creation as well. So he's imminent and he's transcendent. And while everything in creation has a cause, God himself is uncaused. He simply is. That's the great truth here in John 8. That's what Jesus meant that day when he was in the temple courts. He just is. He says, I am. So what does it mean, this relationship between Jesus and his Father. Is, is, the, is God the Son absolutely equal to the Father? Does he possess the same nature, the same substance? Does he have the same attributes as the Father? 
Can a person be both fully human and fully divine? Can a person have two distinct natures? And if so, how do those natures function within one person? These are heavy questions, right? These are things the church fathers, the early church fathers, wrestled with over hundreds of years. And to get the answers, they took the biblical text, used it as their data, and they constructed theological frameworks so that they could understand, here's what the nature of God is, here's what the nature of God the Son is. And through many writings and many councils and many creeds and confessions and much hot debate, they came to a consensus about who God is, who Jesus is. They left us creeds and confessions that we can look at and we can study. We can examine them. We can affirm them. And just as a side note, you know this about me, this is part of why church history matters, right? Because scholarship is done over time by brilliant men that, and we stand on their shoulders today because they've done a lot of the hard work that we don't have to do today and they suffered greatly for it. By the way, the early church made a lot of mistakes along the way too, didn't they? We know this, right, from history. The records of various heretics and heresies are well known. Some of you guys have studied them, from Marcion to Arius to Pelagius and to others. We know about the various heresies. Most of them related to the Trinitarian nature of God and then also to the nature and substance of Jesus, God the Son. Some, in their desire to maintain the oneness of God, putting that above everything else, tried to say that Jesus was the Son of God but still lesser a lesser God than the Father. Or they would try to say, he's a, yes, he's a divine being, but he's still created. Insisting that in some way God could be a God, but not almighty God, and therefore subordinate to God the Father. So a lot of this got mixed up in the first 300 years of the church, and, and we look back and we don't necessarily blame them because, again, we have the benefit of scholarship over 2,000 years now. They were still trying to work all of this out, and it's, it's not easy. Other, other early church fathers wanting to maintain the full divinity of Christ erred on the side of rejecting his full humanity. They talked about Jesus having a human body, but his human soul being taken over by this thing called the logos, a divine power which divinized him. And in the process of doing that, they ended up with a Jesus that was neither fully God nor fully man and completely erred. They, they made him into some third type of being. And sadly, many of these falsehoods, they still linger today, don't they? Because heresy has a way of sticking around. Have you noticed that? It just gets recirculated by people over the uh, generations. And both of the primary Christian cults, Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, still hold and teach some of the very ancient heresies that have been condemned for hundreds of years. For example, some will teach that Jesus is the first spirit child conceived by Father God and Mother God that he came into being as the first created being and then was empowered to create everything else. That's still taught today. That he's not equal to the Father. He's subordinate to him as a lesser God. So they'll say he's God, but they'll, they'll have to say he's a lesser God, and frankly, then they have a hard time understanding why they're not polytheists. Think of the many problems that these types of heresies cause. Again, as we try to understand who Jesus is, in relation to the Father, think about the heresies and what it causes. How can you stand firm on monotheism, the idea that there's one God, while saying that there is God the Father, one God, and a lesser God, Jesus, who would be a second God? That, if I'm not a math major, but if I've got one God and a lesser God, I've got two gods and I'm a polytheist. Right? That creates a real problem. 
If Jesus was created by the Father, then how do we baptize in his name? How do we worship a created thing? The Bible condemns worshiping anything that is created. If Jesus isn't fully God, that he's a created being, how on earth can his death pay for our sins? Pay that debt that we owe on the cross. The Romans crucified many men. Can any of them, any of those men crucified, pay our debt? No. If Jesus isn't fully God, he can't pay it either. So the church has had to fight hard, long and hard, on, on, on some very basic truths over the generations. First of all, that Jesus is of the same nature and substance as God the Father. And you guys know this if you've studied it. The Greek term is homoousios. This was a, a term that was coined at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 to describe Jesus' relationship to the Father. Homo meaning same, ousios meaning nature or substance. Of the same nature and substance as the Father. So that means that God the Son is also unchanging and eternal, just as the Father is. And it means that he's not ontologically subordinate to the Father, but his equal in every way. In fact, God the Son possesses all of the attributes of God, plus then took on a second nature, a human nature, in the incarnation. And so, after further clarification at the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451, the church took another great step and affirmed even more important Christology. That to have the right Jesus... The true Jesus, there were four things you had to affirm. We stand on this today. What I'm about to show you is literally in our doctrinal statement. Four things you have to affirm. Number one, that Jesus is true God of the same nature as the Father regarding his divinity. Secondly, that he is true man of the same nature as man, you and I, regarding his humanity, yet without sin. Number three, in light of those two things, this is a tough one, that he is still one person who possesses both a divine nature and a human nature, right? I mean, it'll, it'll hurt your brain to think too much about this, but again, people have done a lot of work on this over the years. And then fourth, this is where it gets really hard, that those two natures remain distinct from each other without division or separation, without change or confusion, Meaning that the two natures don't get mixed up in Jesus. They don't get jumbled up, right, into some third type of nature or that one nature dominates the other. They're distinct without change or confusion. Now, you're sitting here today, you're like, man, I did not sign up for a theology class. Why does all of this matter? Well, because of these truths that I just laid out, Jesus uniquely qualifies to be everything that he claims to be in Scripture. That makes it important. He is creator and savior and redeemer and Messiah and high priest and judge and good shepherd and the source of living water and the bread of life and the light of the world and everything else that he claims. Because of those truths, because of those truths, Jesus is able to claim, among other things, this. First of all, the right to define the law of Moses. That's pretty big. The right to forgive sin, the right to grant eternal life to whom he chooses to have had fellowship with the Father in eternity past, before the world was made, to have come to earth from heaven, his true home, to be a king of a spiritual kingdom that is not of this world, to have angels who do his bidding, to teach with the authoritative voice of God, to claim messianic titles for himself, to be the object of man's worship, which determines if a person enters into eternal life or eternal death. Those are big things. Those things are only possible 
if we get the right Jesus, the true Jesus. Amen? Because of those truths, Paul can tell us this, just to add some more scripture to our morning, that he, God the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to what? The kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now, who is that Son? Paul goes on to say, well, he's the image, the icon of the invisible God. He is the invisible God because we can't see God the Father. He's spirit. Jesus takes on flesh. He is the representation, the visible manifestation of God. By him, all things were created, Paul says. All things have been created through him and for him, for his glory. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is sustaining everything? Why does this planet continue to stay on its axis? Jesus is holding it together. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. That's, that's I mean, we could, we could do a whole preaching series on, on just Colossians 1 in that section, right? Later, Paul says this to Titus. He says, to look for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Did you catch that? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Because of these same truths, Peter can affirm this. He can say that those who've received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says that his, Jesus' divine power, his, his power that he possesses as God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And the author of Hebrews can say this. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. During this period, the church age, between the, the, the cross and the resurrection and the second coming, in this age, God has spoken to us primarily in one way, through his son. The final and greatest revelation of God in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, what word? Exact representation of his nature, of the same substance and nature as the Father. And again, upholds all things by the word of his power. Guys, as, as a Christian, you ought to have in your heart and mind and in your repertoire, as you're talking to people who are asking questions about Jesus, places like this you can go to Scripture to say, let me show you who Jesus is. And by the way, John 8, 58, where we're in this morning, is really a great place to start. But to be able to jump to Colossians 1 and to Hebrews 1 and to, to go to the, as ambassadors for Christ, we ought to know these passages. We ought to memorize them. We ought to have them ready to go. Always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, right? Then last thing, consider the divine attributes that we see Jesus manifesting in his life. Like the Father, Jesus is said to be assay of himself. John 5, 26 said that Jesus has life in himself. Like the Father, Jesus is unchanging. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. Like the Father, Jesus is omnipresent. We've seen this multiple times. Matthew 18, 20 says, where two or three believers are gathered together in Jesus' name, he is there in their midst. Wow. Like the Father, Jesus is omniscient. 
John 1.47 says that Jesus saw Nathanael even before he physically arrived to meet him. John 2.25 says that Jesus knows what's in man. We're going to find out in John 16.30, it says Jesus knows all things. He's omniscient. And like the Father, Jesus is omnipotent. Matthew 8.26 and 27 says that even the wind and the, and the seas obey the voice of Jesus. Wow. As we've seen, Jesus can actually add physical matter, right? Loaves and fishes. He can multiply physical matter. We've seen him change the structure of physical matter, turning water into wine. He's omnipotent as well. And finally, like the Father, Jesus is eternal in nature. Jesus is eternal in nature. You have to know this. That brings us back to our text for this morning in John chapter 8. This is the final claim, the greatest of all the lightning flashes in this section when we see Jesus claiming to be eternal. So let's look at it again. Look at verse 56. Let's break these last four verses down and then we'll conclude with some thoughts. Verse 56, your father Abraham, Jesus said, rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. Now that's a shocking claim, isn't it? If somebody made that type of claim today, you, what would you say? Dude is nuts. You would. That is a shocking. Abraham, he says, who lived more than 2,000 years before Jesus came to earth, somehow saw Jesus' day and he rejoiced over it. What could that mean? If you were there that day, how would you have interpreted Jesus' words? What would you have thought of that? Notice now that Jesus said that in response to a question that they had asked him. Look up at verse 53. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. Jesus says, yeah, I am. I am. And let me give you the evidence for it. Let me, let me, let me show you why that that's true, that I am greater. Abraham looked forward to my coming from heaven. He understood, he understood who I am and what my mission is. And when he saw it, he rejoiced. He rejoiced greatly. But he saw the promises of God coming to fruition in me. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so these Jews must have looked at him like, what? I mean, with, with eyes bulging and jaws tightening and fists being raised, how dare you say this? Who do you say you are? How can a man who isn't even 50 years old claim to have seen another man who lived 2,000 years ago, they say? But did you notice the error that they made? They didn't really listen to Jesus, did they? They heard, but they didn't listen. We've talked about that before. They have an error. Jesus' claim wasn't to, that he saw Abraham, although he did. right? His claim is that Abraham saw his day. They actually make a mistake here. As we've seen time and time again, in their spiritual blindness, the, the Jews in this crowd, they're only thinking physically, right? They're not, try, they're not able to perceive the depth of the supernatural truth that Jesus is trying to share with them here. They, they're just incapable of it. Now let's ask the question, how is that possible? How is it possible that Abraham was able to look down the corridor of time and see what would take place in Jesus' day? You know what the answer is? I don't know. I mean, it's, we're not, I, wouldn't it be great if, as an aside, let me give you the theological answer for how all this happened. We're not given it, but as you know, that does not stop preachers from speculating, <laughs> right? Does not stop theologians from trying to guess exactly what's going on. So let me give you a couple possible explanations. First of all, we know that Abraham did come into contact with God the Son 
in the Old Testament, right? In what we call a pre-incarnate form, okay? So the, understand the distinction between there are Old Testament manifestations of God the Son, but in a temporary way, a temporary form. When Jesus took on flesh, when he came to earth, that became a permanent nature. When we pass from this life and see Jesus, he will still have his perfect, sinless human nature. That's for all eternity. But what happens in the Old Testament is a temporary pre-incarnate form so that, and we call these things theophanies, by the way, or Christophanies, whichever term you prefer, but God takes on a temporary form that's adapted to life on earth so he can speak directly to his people. And Abraham was the beneficiary of that on a couple of occasions. In Genesis 18, for example, okay, the text says that the Lord, that's the covenant name of Yahweh, appeared to Abraham while he was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. First question has to be is, okay, so what did the Lord look like? Right? I want to know, what did he look like? Well, it says in the text that Abraham saw three men. Right? You remember the story? Three men, and they sat down. They had a meal. So that's why he had to take on a human form, right? Because he actually ate a meal with Abraham and with Sarah, his wife. And there was a conversation then about the, the coming promise of a son, Isaac, right? And then also a conversation about the, the ugly destiny of Sodom. And throughout this event, one of those three beings, at one moment he's being called a man, and at another point he's called the Lord, multiple times, man and the Lord, okay? So there's no question that this is an appearance of God in this moment, and it only makes sense if you look at the, the, the Godhead, the Trinity, there is one person among the three who has the specific functional role of taking on a form and appearing to men. So this would likely be God the Son, right? Or if you prefer, the second person of the Trinity who took on this form to communicate with Abraham and Sarah. The, a, little, a few chapters later in Genesis 22, we have the famous story of Abraham's almost sacrifice of his son Isaac, right? Genesis 22, and in that story, the text says that a being who's called the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said, he called out to Abraham and said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. For now I know that you fear God, that's important, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, catch the parallel there, your one and only son, from me, from me. So this angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham, identifying himself as God. So again, there's little doubt here that this is God the Son appearing to Abraham, not as a man this time, but in some form that we understand as the angel of the Lord. So back to John 8, is Abraham familiar with God's Son? In some respect, we have to say yes. And then we add this really important passage from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11. You guys know what Hebrews 11 is? You should know this. It's the great faith chapter. Okay, so the author of Hebrews lists a number of Old Testament saints, talks about their faithfulness, and then it says this in, in Hebrews eleven, thirteen. It says, all these, and by the way, that list includes Abraham, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Think about that. So in some way that we can't really understand this side of heaven through some form of special revelation from God to Abraham, he was made aware of how this future plan of redemption was going to play out. 
He had contact with God the Son, and then in some form of revelation, he was shown these things down the corridor of time, right? So how the being he'd encountered, first as a man, then as the angel of the Lord, would someday take on flesh in a permanent way, the incarnation, and then die and be raised from the dead in order to provide forgiveness of sins, that, that Abraham was somehow given that information. And I have to believe that that revelation was given to him so that he could see how God's covenant promises to him back in Genesis 12 would come to fruition. Remember, God promised Abraham, I will bless every family on the earth through your seed. And so, God, so, so Abraham was given by God the vision of exactly how that would come to play. And Jesus confirms it in John 8. He says, Abraham saw this day and he rejoiced. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so let's look in at the famous response in verse 58. Again, oh, it would be so great if the, if the Bible gave us more information on that, right? But that's decent speculation. Can you give me a maybe? Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> Stick with me. All right, so you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And now I, I have to think the Jews thought, okay, well, I mean, there's sarcasm in this, right? They're like, this will end the argument. I mean, come on, how, if Jesus says, yes, I've seen Abraham, we're just going to go, dude, you're a nut, and walk away. So they, they couldn't possibly have predicted the answer that Jesus gives them, right? Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Mic drop, jaws drop, fists get raised. Are you kidding me? Wow. So, okay, where does the background of that statement come from? Some of you guys know from Exodus chapter 3, right? The famous burning bush passage. Remember, Moses has fled Egypt, right? He's gone out to the land of Midian. He's married this woman named Zipporah. He's now tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, and they're out in the wilderness. And the text says that he came to a place called Horeb, the mountain of God. And once again, we see this being called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses from the flames of this bush over there that's not burning. And Moses is like, that's odd. I'm going to go take a look at that. It literally says that in the text, which makes me laugh. And when Moses approaches it, God calls to him from the bush. And he says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. You're about to step on holy ground. Whoa, the bush is talking <laughs> and I need to take off my shoes. This is a big moment, right? Okay, so the angel then identifies himself. Get this, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is Yahweh speaking from the bush, right? There's no other way to describe that because Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he instructs Moses to do a bunch of things that, wow, talk about your assignment. I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to confront Pharaoh. I want you to lead people out of slavery and then come back to this mountain and worship me. And of course, we know the story of Moses is like, ah, uh, right? I can't speak like that. And so we know how that story goes. But let's make sure I put the verse up here. Okay, here we go. So this is Exodus 3.13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israel. This, I, I laugh at this because this, this would be me. Like, I have some questions. <laughs> God, I, I, I love that you're talking to me like this through the bush, I need some clarifications. I mean, this would be me. Rather than just, whoop, just do what God says. So I, I love the humanity that's included in Scripture, right? Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? 
Then what shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And then verse 15 says, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So the name of God is forever. I am. The first person singular form of the Hebrew verb to be or to exist. That, that's the core of who, the, at the core of God's identity is this, he just is. And, and don't add anything to it, period. And again, I know that breaks your brain a little bit, but he just is. So when Jesus says the same thing about himself, you have to understand, this is one of the most stunning statements in all of scripture. So listen, just some practical instruction for you guys. This happens all the time. You'll hear people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. How many of you guys have heard that before? Or you've read it on the internet, right? Somebody, Jesus never really claimed to be God. There is no doubt that what he was doing in the temple that day was equating himself with Yahweh as Almighty God, the very same God who these Jews he's talking to claim to worship. So that makes his words either the highest form of blasphemy ever spoken or the most perfect and holy words ever spoken. Again, no middle ground. Before Abraham was born, that's the Greek verb ginomai, and it's written in the aorist tense, meaning at some point in time, Abraham became. At some point in time, right? Because Abraham's like us. He was born, he didn't exist, and then he was born, and he became, right? Before Abraham was born, I am. That's the Greek verb, I me, in the present tense. The present tense, it means to be or to exist. I am, Jesus says. I mean, you can't, you can't misunderstand this. Well, if you're a Christian cult, you can. But if you're really looking at the text without bias, you cannot miss this. A simple, understandable way of reading in English is simply this. Abraham became, but I've always been just in the most simple English we can imagine. Now, because the Christian cults like to twist language for their own ends, the nuances really do matter here. Note, Jesus didn't say this. He didn't say, before Abraham was born, I was. That's really important. The JWs in particular like to twist this one because that would mean that he pre-existed Abraham, and that's true, but it doesn't say enough about who Jesus is. So the JWs pin their hopes on that faulty translation. They say, see, Jesus existed before Abraham because God created him as the first act of creation. So to say Jesus said, I was, would actually feed into their heresy. According to, listen, according to the Greek text, according to every council and creed and confession, that is flat out heresy. You just have to know that. By saying I am, Jesus is not just claiming preexistence. He's claiming continuous eternal existence that's why it makes a difference he is claiming to be uncreated eternal in nature in the same way that Yahweh claims to be those things by saying to Moses I am in the very same way okay in fact in the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament the phraseology from Exodus 3:14 is the exact same as the phraseology in John 8:58. it cannot be missed so Bottom line, guys, there's no stronger statement of preexistence possible. No stronger statement of continuous, eternal existence possible. Jesus is literally saying things that only God can say about himself. That's the bottom line. So, in response to the question raised by the crowd, are you greater than Father Abraham? 
infinitely greater. This is what we have to understand because listen, I'm just going to, I'm going to rant for just a quick second. Um, the trend today is to make Jesus as human as possible. You see it in The Chosen, for example, um, which in the past we've said it's an interesting watch. It's, it's worth looking at. But you see this incredible desire to sort of take the, the divine side of him and lay it on a shelf and say, let's make him really hipster and, and really human and so we can really identify with him. We just have to be careful about this, right? Because Jesus is infinitely greater than a great man, Abraham. Right? Infinitely greater. This isn't an issue of degrees where you got, well, one guy is a notch or two above another guy. This is divinity versus humanity. This is, you know, infinite versus finite. There, there just isn't a comparison. So don't get trapped in going so far to, to get out of balance on the two natures of Christ and focus so much on the human. So this is the full disclosure of the Son's glory right there in the temple courts on this day before this crowd. Now, key question, so how are they going to respond to this? How are the Jews going to respond to this? Verse 59, sadly, as you might expect, not well. I mean, how many times have we seen this, right? Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So there's no question that they heard and recognized that name that he applied to himself. Remember, guys, these are Jews immersed in the law. Did they not understand the great I am? They did. If there was anything they understood back in that day, they understood this. Keep this in mind. This was a people that went so far in their effort not to take the Lord's name in vain that they would not speak the name of Yahweh out loud. They would not say I am out loud. Right? They would call him Adonai so that they wouldn't just accidentally stumble into a violation of the third commandment. So they know what this name means. So not only does Jesus use the name out loud, but he applies it to himself. That is more than they can bear. And so they judge him as a blasphemer. And to their credit, they take action commensurate with blasphemy. Right? You, you, cannot, you cannot judge them for being wishy-washy in the punishment, right? They pick up stones. That's what blasphemy required. But they're ready to execute Jesus right there in God's house. That's amazing. And it's, listen, it's precisely that violent response that tells us the truth about what Jesus said on that day. This is one of the great proofs that you, know, you can use against a Jehovah's Witness who says, ah, oh, Jesus wasn't really saying that. Well, then why did they pick up rocks? It's the violent response that tells us something. Listen, if Jesus said, look, yeah, I was alive before Abraham, they'd have said, whatever, dude, and walked away because being crazy wasn't worthy of death. Does that make sense? They'd have just said, you're a fool, and walked away. It's not a death sentence to be, to be a lunatic. But he says, I am God. And that is worthy of death. So it is significant here how John ends the chapter after this long dialogue. Look at this. Jesus first hid himself from these Jews. And second, he left the temple. Now consider the spiritual meaning behind those two things. He hid himself from the Jews and he left God's house. And that just reminds us what John said way back in chapter one, right? Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. So even as we wrap up this chapter, there's some, some spiritual, a spiritual word picture being drawn for us there as Jesus walks away from this crowd. They will die in their sins, won't they? Okay, let's wrap up. 
Just a few final thoughts. You know this, you guys. People today, they all think they know who Jesus is. Uh, and, and most of the people who claim to know something about him, it's not based in research. It's not based in study. It's not based on really knowing anything but maybe a soundbite or something they, they read on the internet. But people are not shy about sharing their ignorance. Right? Either in person or on the interwebs. They're just, they'll make... They'll make confident statements about who they believe Jesus to be, even if it's not rooted in in actual research. So I cannot stress this enough, the importance for everybody here to make sure that if you claim to believe in Jesus, that you have the right Jesus, that you have the true Jesus, because only that Jesus can save you from your sins. That's it. You better, look, if we're going to get something right in the number of years that God gives us on this planet, this is something to get right. This is why we study the Bible. This is why we study church history, because important things hang in the balance. Eternal life and eternal death. You may have a Mormon or JW neighbor who you're like, but they're so nice. They are nice. And they're zealous for their faith, right? Sometimes they they put us to shame how hard they work for their faith. But Paul tells us in Romans 10 that zeal without knowledge is useless. Zeal without the truth will not get you anywhere. Not only that, but you'll be self-deceived and ultimately that zeal without knowledge will condemn you in the end. We've got to get this right. It makes a difference. Anyone who dares to to take an honest, unbiased study of John's gospel is going to come to the conclusion, yes, we know what Jesus was claiming to be. Yeah, I mean, you can't, if you're unbiased and you just open the text and you're like, I'm going to push everything, it's clear what Jesus is claiming. I've given you a list of things that he's, that he's claimed. The question is, do you believe it? Do you really believe it in your heart of hearts? Do you believe that he was and is God the Son, the second person of the, of the triune Godhead, equal to the Father in substance and nature and attributes? If so... Now take the next step. Does that belief lead you to die to yourself and take up a cross and follow him as Lord of your life? Because if, if you don't get to step two, it's just an intellectual exercise that you just love doctrine and you're interested in the Bible and you're like, oh, I believe that. If you don't take up your cross and die to yourself and follow him as Lord, then that's just a mental journey you're on. It's an intellectual exercise that is not sufficient for eternal life. And we can get wrapped up in that. So don't play games with God on this. He knows you better than you know yourself. You can't fool him. You might fool us. You can't fool him. Amen? There's an important story that comes out of Matthew's gospel. I'll wrap up with this. Chapter 11. And it raises a really good question for all of us. In this story, John the Baptist has been arrested. He's in prison. And he sends word to Jesus. And he asks this question. Are you the expected one, Jesus? Or should we look for someone else? It's a sort of shocking scene, right? Because John the Baptist is also known to be a great man. But he's struggling with doubts now because he is suffering and he is facing physical death. And Jesus answers him in the affirmative and says, tell John, look at all the miracles that are taking place. I'm giving evidence that I'm exactly who I claim to be. But he ends with this statement. I'm gonna put it on the screen. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Interesting that he would say that to John. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That crowd in John 8 
took offense at Jesus. They were offended by him. They were offended by his words. They literally stood in God's house and they stared God in the face and they heard the Almighty teach and they wanted to kill him. Think about that. Friends, today the venue is different, but the the situation is not all that different. If you've been sitting through this preaching series, in this chapter in particular, you have heard God speak through his word. You too have stared into his face and you have heard Almighty God, Jesus Christ, teach. Now will you take offense at him? Will you be offended by his words? Or will you relegate him to just an intellectual exercise? Or will you follow him as Lord? That's the big idea when we get to these these places in Scripture where there's only two roads. And Jesus intended to divide people on those two roads. Which road are you on? Practically speaking, there's only the two choices. Worship him or stone him. Choose wisely. Choose life. That's what Jesus would say. Let's bow our heads. I want you guys to just process on your own for a few minutes as you take in all of that. I know that was a lot. I know this passage is hard and powerful. Process that with the Lord in prayer for just a few minutes and then Grant's gonna bring us out.